0: I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Christine Emba is the author of Rethinking Sex, a provocation, and an opinion columnist and editor at The Washington Post. At The Post and elsewhere, she writes about ideas, society, and culture. She's based in Washington, D.C. Christine, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Now, we explore a wide array of topics on this podcast, and I invite guests on for a variety of reasons. But I feel like in this particular instance, I need to lay a little bit of groundwork for this episode to explain to our audience why it's such a pleasure to have you on today, just beyond your accomplishments as a writer. I grew up in a religious household. We weren't evangelical. I know you grew up evangelical yourself, Christine, and I wasn't raised especially Bible-thumping. But I grew up believing God was real. He felt real to me for a very long time. And my religious upbringing, along with the morality my parents instilled within me, which of course was influenced by their upbringing, guided how I felt about sex. I wanted to, as I would have once said, save myself for marriage. And I didn't have sex until I was nearly 25. As you say in your book's introduction, quote, the average American millennial has their sexual debut about the age of 17, end quote. And so I was a few years behind my friends, and it happened a few years after I lost my faith. But even with that before or after marriage binary limitation removed, the symbolic and emotional significance of sex remained. Only something I wanted to do in a committed relationship with someone I came to love. I I never judged those around me for having more sex with more partners than I did. And I certainly understood the appeal of it, but especially once I left my religious circles behind, I felt alienated by most mainstream narratives around sex and love. It felt like there was this single, one-size-fits-all, casual sex is a net good narrative that I just couldn't relate to. Instead of a, a chorus of voices talking about all the different ways we could think about sex, I felt like I just heard a single voice coming from everywhere. And so your book... Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, I think is appropriately titled <laughs> in that regard, even if to me it feels utterly unprovocative. And I'm glad, I'm really, really glad to be able to read something that makes me feel a little less alone. So first, thank you so much for writing this book.
1: I honestly love to hear that. That's, that is why I wrote it. So I'm glad, I'm glad it came to you in that way.
0: Me too. Your book investigates a phenomenon that looks like a paradox on the surface. We're far removed from the puritanical sexual norms of decades past. The sexual liberation movement was a success. People are freer than ever to have as much sex as they want, when they want, with whomever they want. And yet, a lot of people, and especially a lot of women, aren't all that satisfied with the sex they're having. So the paradox is this. We wanted to be able to have sex free of judgment and constraint. And now, for the most part, we can. But we're kind of miserable. So what's going on?
1: Yeah, I mean, exactly. There's even a chapter in Rethinking Sex called We're Liberated, But We're Miserable. It's exactly that. So I'll start by saying I wrote Rethinking Sex as kind of a call to arms against our current sort of anything goes sexual culture. And I wrote it to critique the assumption that consent is the only standard we can have for whether sex is good or not. But also to question whether some of the assumptions that we've kind of been raised in post- sexual revolution and feminist movement are correct, or if they might actually not be serving us. And so I think that you're right about the idea that we have, theoretically, the most freedom to sort of have sex on our own terms and pursue our own sexual pleasure than maybe we've ever had. Contraception is widely available. Most Americans now do not think that there's anything morally wrong with extramarital or premarital sex. And yet, if you talk to people, and I spoke to so many young men, and yes, especially young women for this book, it seems like in this kind of open field or freewheeling sex that's been rolled out before us, a lot of people feel actually kind of lost. They have all this freedom, but it's not really making them happy. And in fact, they're often finding themselves having sex that they don't want to have, doing things that they don't want to do, or feeling lonelier than ever before. And so there's this disconnect between kind of what we felt we were being offered and what the experience actually is. And I I wanted to dive into that, figure out what was going on, and try and put together a positive vision for a sexual culture that is better, that makes people happier, that makes sex more joyful.
0: You said last year on Canadian Current Affairs Program, The Agenda, quote, The problems that we thought had gone away when it comes to sex hadn't actually. And in fact, the rules were in fact less clear now than they ever had been, end quote. So what were the old rules and what have become the now less clear ones?
1: Yeah, it kind of feels like a pendulum swing to me. And, you know, I'll base it in sort of what you were saying, actually, about how you were brought up religious. And I feel like the old rules that we all understood were the rules that are kind of thought of as purity culture today the idea that sex is something that we don't really talk about. Sex should only be had within marriage between one man and one woman, that sex was very private. It was something secretive. We didn't really talk about pleasure. And if there were sort of sexual standards, often men were allowed a good amount of leeway to pursue sex and women were often judged for it. So in some sense, it was a feeling of repression in some way. Sex was really important to get right, but we don't really talk about that. We don't really do that. And then post-sexual revolution, the pendulum swung in almost entirely the other direction. Instead of sex being this sort of meaningful spiritual thing, you know, it's like sex is a bodily act. It's like eating or something. Do it whenever you want. Just make sure you get consent first. And instead of, you know, we reserve sex for marriage between two people, it was actually modern people pursue their sexual pleasure with whomever and kind of whenever they want. And that is actually what it looks like to almost be a good feminist or a hip swinging gentleman in the modern world. And I think it was Hugh Hefner in the first issue of Playboy who defined the modern bachelor as somebody who had an apartment in the city where he would invite a girl over to talk about Picasso and jazz and then sex. That was the modern era. And today we see sex everywhere. It almost feels like you're supposed to be having it. And if you aren't having it, maybe there's something wrong with you or you're a little bit retrograde somehow. But that's also a pressure to do something in just a different direction. So we've gone from one extreme to another.
0: Funny that you mentioned that bit about Hugh Hefner and the modern man in the apartment. I just rewatched with my girlfriend, The Apartment by Billy Wilder with Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine. Have you ever seen that movie?
1: I have. Yeah.
0: Oh, it's so brilliant. Only tangentially related here, but that idea of like having an apartment in the city you could go to, to have tour de was all the rage in the early 1960s, apparently, and a brilliant film to our audience if you haven't watched it.
1: Yeah. It has a lot to say about this question. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's interesting how movies, understandably, are are time capsules of whatever the mores of the time were. Yeah, absolutely. There was something you mentioned there that made me think of this video that went viral back in 2015. It racked up like millions of views on YouTube. It's called Tea Consent. Perhaps you came across it in your research. Yes. It's about three minutes and it goes through the many scenarios in, in which it is and is not appropriate to give a person a cup of tea. You know, if someone says they want a cup of tea, then you make them one. But sometimes someone might say they want a cup of tea, and then you make it, and then they decide that they don't want it. And it would, of course, be wrong to force them to drink the tea you just made. And of course, you shouldn't try and give an unconscious person tea. It's rather obvious what the video is analogizing there. And you reference an adjacent analogy in your book. Don't try and feed someone a sandwich they don't want. You take issue with this comparison, though. So And I can't believe that these words are coming out of my mouth. But Christine, why is sex not a sandwich?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I do. (laughs) You know when you when you put it like that, I think the answer is is kind of obvious (laughs) to anyone you say it to, right? But yes, I think that these analogies, which have become so common and commonplace just get sex, you know, entirely wrong. Sex is in fact not a sandwich. It's not a cup of tea. I actually don't think that it's sort of just a random bodily function, right? Sex is intensely human. It's intensely personal. It often touches something really deep within us and that we share with someone in a very particular context. It's ineffable. It's not like anything else. And so to treat it as though it's just like, I don't know, a cookie that you're passing back and forth really sort of lessens what it is. And so the rules that apply to not spilling a cup of tea on someone are really insufficient when it comes to something as big as sex.
0: Yes. And it seems just to completely disregard the emotional and some would even say spiritual nature of sex, which again, even saying this out loud, like saying that sex can be emotionally meaningful and even have a spiritual component. like I actually feel part of my body fighting the words as they're coming out of my mouth because I feel like it's not something that we should say. In the first chapter of the book, you write, quote, we talk a lot about sex, who's having it, how we should perform, what's appealing and what's a turnoff. And yet we rarely stop to think about the meaning of the act itself. What we believe sex actually is, why we're having it, and what we want from it, what we are really looking for in our sexual, romantic, or dating lives, end quote. I want to tie that to a sentiment you summarized slightly earlier in that same chapter, something echoed by many of the women you spoke with. Quote, I didn't really want it, but I did it. It wasn't rape, but it feels bad, end quote. And it feels to me, and I want to get your thoughts on this Christine, it feels to me, and this felt like a through line in the book, that a lot of people know, whether or not they verbalize it, the meaning of sex and its significance, and that's why they feel bad when the sex they're having isn't living up to the sex they know they want. In some ways, it feels like everyone you spoke with, or many of the people, had a fairly good idea of what sex should be, but no one wanted to verbalize it lest they be labeled like a prude, right? But my question is, a prude by who? Because the majority of women seemed aligned in their displeasure, in their yearning for something more. And this seems to speak to this like broader phenomenon that's happening in society around a whole host of issues in which a majority of people are terrified to admit that they share the view of the majority. So what is causing something like this to happen?
1: Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean. There were (laughs) there were so many of these situations where I talked with women, yeah, and men who would say, you know, they had a sexual encounter that they just sort of went into because they thought they were supposed to in some way, or you know, had sexual encounters in which something kind of surprising happened to them. There's a story that I tell in the book about a woman who came up to me at a party and was like, "Yeah," so I was hooking up with this guy and he just started choking me. And I didn't really know, (laughs) is that okay? Like, is that normal? Obviously, she didn't enjoy this, but she just went along with it because she thought it was what she was supposed to be doing. And I spend a lot of the book trying to unpick and untangle where this sort of mysterious outside pressure of what we're supposed to be doing or the sex we're supposed to be having has come from. And in the book, I term one of the forces a sort of uncritical sex positivity, and when you think about the term sex positivity and where it came from, it was originally from sort of the earliest second wave feminist movement and it was the idea that sex and pleasure are important for women and we should be able to talk about them and pursue them and this was set up specifically in contrast to kind of the anti-sex wing of the feminist movement to believe that any sort of heterosexual sex was violence and that political lesbianism or celibacy was the only way forward for women. So that was a really specific conflict of the time. But in the current moment, the idea of sex positivity seems to have bloomed into this kind of strange pressure, actually, where to be a good modern person, to be a good feminist, especially for women, it almost feels like you should be having sex. Like You should be down to experiment with everything. You should say yes. Otherwise, yeah, you're repressed or a prude. So a lot of the young people I talked to sort of felt this ambient pressure to be proving that they were sex positive in this particular way, even when it did not feel personally positive to them. And it's reinforced too by media, by culture, where sex is presented as something that's easy and you don't catch feelings and it like doesn't matter that much. It's just like a fun thing that we get up to kind of like skiing, except like use a condom and get consent, I guess. But most people actually do sense that it means more to them. And especially in the context of what is often described as hookup culture and sort of the current dating culture where casual seems to be preferred, a lot of people actually do want a deep and meaningful connection. Yet, don't feel that it's sex positive to ask for it or feel like it's kind of lame to pursue that. And so they find themselves settling for acts and relationships that don't really serve them and don't actually feel good.
0: I want to relate a personal story of my own that happened, gosh, almost like 10 years ago now. I had made this short film. I went to film school and I was making a couple short films after I got out. And I made this one, That was about the waning final days of a couple who'd been dating and cohabitating for several years. And at the point in time in which we first meet them, they haven't had sex in a couple months, right? They had kind of become almost roommates rather than lovers. And it was kind of about like their last ditch effort to sort of reignite their passion. Otherwise, they were just going to break up. And there's this moment towards the end of the film in which the woman and the couple takes off her clothes and and implores her boyfriend to have sex with her, right? And he's just, for whatever reason, not interested. And it was interesting because I showed the film in its earlier cuts to a bunch of female friends of mine and a bunch of male friends of mine. And, you know, I've gone to grad school, I'm considerably educated, I'm more on the sensitive side. So I assumed that a lot of the men in my life would at least understand the ambiguity as to why this scene might be taking place. But what really shocked me is, and this sounds so binary, but it is exactly how it happened. I showed my female friends the scene in the film and they totally got it. They're like, oh, well, you know, they were referencing earlier parts of the film. You know, they've been getting into arguments lately and he's under a lot of pressure from his work and she hasn't maybe been his understanding. And da da da. Like referencing reasons why this man might not want to have sex with this woman at this point in time for a variety of emotional reasons, right? And to a man... I showed it to my male friends, and all of them gave me variations of this answer. Is he gay? Is there something wrong with him? Is he experiencing erectile dysfunction? Is he actually secretly like men? Those sorts of things. They actually couldn't wrap their minds around the idea that this guy might just not be wanting to have sex with this person because maybe he just doesn't love her anymore. The very fact that she was attractive and he was heterosexual was the equation that meant that he should want to have sex with her. And this was shocking to me because, again, these were men that I knew for a long time. They're fathers now. They're educated. They're sensitive. They're there for me when I need them. But this dichotomy of what the women were reading into the scene and what the men were not reading into the scene was really, I don't know, disconcerting to me. But it begs the question, if I'm to misuse that phrase, that I'm wondering if some of this female discontent and male discontent, right? Like I said, I've been unhappy in our sexual marketplace. But I'm wondering if some of it is being driven by like, a small or maybe not so small set of men who really enjoy and want and, and relish this idea of, of casual sex and just, I want to have sex with people who I find attractive and I'm okay not being emotionally connected to them. And I'm wondering if like that's also part of kind of what's driving this and like a large portion of people aren't happy with this deal, but for some reason they're kind of seeding the ground to this small section of people who really love what's going on today.
1: Yeah, that's a fascinating story and actually a great question. I mean, there is a chapter in the book that is entitled, you know, men and women are not the same. And I do think that it's true. And it's become almost a little bit taboo to say in this modern era that often men and women like experience sex differently and pursue sex differently. And not always, like obviously we can't make categorical definitions and there is a spectrum, but women tend to feel like more emotionally about sex and like tie it to sort of, yeah, kind of these environmental cues, what's going on in the relationship, what sort of relationship they want to have, how they feel about their partners. And men are a little bit less driven by that and are more willing to have sex generally, no matter what's going on. But I think one of the essential questions to talk about and that I spend a lot of time on in Rethinking Sex is exactly what you're asking. How much the sort of broken understanding of sex has to do with the ways in which one group, which is men generally, and the sort of particular kind of man, seems to have kind of gained power and is setting the landscape and everyone else is just sort of living in it. I do talk about the feminist movements throughout the book, but if you think about what the early feminist movement asked for, it was kind of a revolutionary idea, like smashing a patriarchal system that sort of centered this male preference that you talked about and toxic value systems that disregarded emotion and feelings and love and care when it came to sex. And they wanted to replace it with a vision in which women and men and emotion and these distinctive concerns were equally valued and respected. But over the past two decades, I would say, there's been a shift in the feminist movement to a kind of lean in and girl boss feminism. And rather than dismantling this sort of male dominated system that disregards these things like emotion, it sort of redefined female progress and sex positivity as just gaining power within the existing mindset and adopting its values. And so it was adopting the values of the men who had the most power at the time and the ones who are often seen as winners in this system are the ones who don't care about other people's feelings and don't necessarily think about other people who aren't them, who don't let themselves be tied down or stopped by things like emotions or feelings or assessing the relationship and who can have kind of the most sex, but sort of stay liberated in a a sort of misogynistic sense. And so the norm has almost been set as like trying to be the one who cares the least, who can have as much sex as possible without worrying too much or having too many feelings about it or thinking too much about the relationship surrounding it. If anything, there's sort of this ideal out there that the best way to have sex is to not care, to be free of those concerns. But most people who I spoke to, both men and women, actually do care. and actually do want their emotions cared for and want real relationships. But because this sort of feels like the norm, they live up to it.
0: I want to touch briefly on something you said at the start there, specifically around the topic of how the sexes are different. There's a ton of overlap. Former guest of the show, Megan Down, who's a writer and columnist herself, she she talks of this phenomenon of having to say, to be sure, right before you're about to say something that might upset your side of the aisle. you know. To be sure, men and women have a lot of overlap and you can't make broad generalizations about any group without, of course, accounting for individuals. So thank you, Megan, to be sure. you know, I was speaking with Richard Reeves a few episodes ago and he said that he got a lot of pushback around a couple chapters in his book, specifically ones that talked about how boys might have different needs than girls. There's this ascendant ideology and i think this is happening on the right and the left i just happen to run more in left wing circles than right wing ones so i'm more acutely aware of when it's happening on quote unquote my side but it seems like ideology will take hold and then anything that challenges it even if that challenge is rooted in truth observable truth it's like resisted like whether it's around like certain covid protocols that were well intentioned but maybe were ineffective or police defunding or sexual norms right an idea will gain momentum within a politically aligned group or a subset of that group. And then that idea will be implemented. And then a bunch of people in that group will begin to realize that the idea, while perhaps harmless you know, in conception, doesn't work that well in execution. And then a ton of people will realize it and they'll talk about it privately with one another. But no one will want to say anything publicly about the idea that everyone seems to realize isn't all that great an idea anymore. I don't know if this metaphor holds, but it's like if a bunch of friends all saw a trailer for a movie and the movie looked really good, and then they all went to see it together. And in the first 10 minutes, everyone, all the friends sitting side by side realized the movie was terrible, but no one wanted to get up to leave the theater because everyone agreed before they went that the movie was good. And so no one wants to leave the good movie, even though they can all see it's actually bad. So (laughs) why, in your view, does this sort of phenomenon happen? right? And how do we get better at resisting it? You put a provocation in your book, in the title of your book. And I have to imagine when you were doing some research, and I think you talk about this in the book even, you probably got some pushback. Like, hey, I agree with you, Christine, but maybe it's not in the best interest for you to write it. How do we get out of that trap that we've put ourselves in?
1: <laughs> I actually love that analogy about the movie, and I think it's exactly right. So like, let's think about this in two parts, maybe. I actually think that this is also a perfect analogy for this question about, like, oh, do men and women view sex differently? Maybe they don't. Like, what's the meaning here? I think the first question that one might ask about the movie theater analogy is, okay, why did this group of friends decide that this was a good movie? Why was it so important for them to come to that conclusion even before going in? Like, there has to be a reason, right? And there probably is. And when it comes to gender difference and gender difference around sex, there definitely was. Today, the mainstream view kind of sees women and men as broadly similar. And it's understood that women have had to put up with kind of patriarchal oppression and we shouldn't treat women differently than men. And in service of kind of closing the gap between men and women and really living up to this idea of equality, we've almost started to pretend that they are not just like equal in value, male and female, but just the same. So, you know, we went from men and women should both be allowed to explore their sexuality to actually just pretending that sex isn't a unique physical interaction that affects men and women differently. Because I think there's a sort of fear, right, especially on the left and the feminist movements that by admitting difference or admitting that the movie might not be that good, you might be setting women back somehow, or you're kind of like betraying the cause in a way. And so I think to begin to have conversations that sort of push the norms, you have to kind of try and figure out why the norms were set in the first place, why the conversation stalled there, whether it was a good reason or not, and sort of how to address that. And going back to the movie analogy, I guess, when it comes to sex... Yeah, the problem is that the movie isn't really that good. The problem is that as actually our own experiences really make clear, our biology and our biographies, the way that we've lived life, male or female, come with us into the bedroom and shape how we have sex and shape how we experience that. And if we're honest with ourselves and are trying to actually have good sex and have better lives, we would do well to be realistic about that. And rethinking sex, I termed a provocation, not because I'm trying to make people upset with these points, but I think to be honest, you do have to push people and sort of provoke people into having that conversation. Why are you pretending (laughs) that something that isn't real is real? What is behind the sort of fiction that you've decided to hold that men and women are totally the same and approach sex differently. And if women talk about how they're physically more vulnerable than men, say, in a sexual encounter, that's a problem. Where did that come from? You just have to say it out loud, right? And you have to, I think, say it sensitively enough and explain it well enough that people grasp it. But I do think that once it's out there, we can start dismantling untruths, Once we've admitted sort of why we were holding up this fiction in the first place, we can begin to talk about what is actually real and where do we go next? Where do we go from here?
0: Does that make sense to you? It does. Yes. It feels like human beings have this tendency to overcorrect. I read this article, it was like probably 14 years ago that was marking the election of presidents. Like it was explaining, like, how could a country who voted for George W. Bush totally yo-yo in the other direction and vote for Obama? And it chronicled how our country tends to do that a lot. We'll vote for one side that is extreme in some senses, and then we'll eight years later vote for the other side that is extreme in other senses, right? And I'm using extreme subjectively here, but extreme in relation to one another. You would not think necessarily offhandedly that a country that elects one type of leader would then elect an entirely different type only a few years later. But it seems like in our quest to either make up for the past or to correct for past wrongs, we tend to, as human beings, almost run a little too far the other way. And it seems like that's what's happened here. But it's not that I don't understand that. It's more that I'm really intrigued and curious in kind of a dark way about what causes the kind of environment where it's so hard for people to just say without risk of losing social standing or even their job, right? In some industries, hey, I'm on board for like most of this stuff, but don't all of us here, right? Like raise your hand if you all think that maybe some of this, because you know you have private conversations with friends about certain topics and everyone's like, yeah, I totally agree. But I would never say that in public. And you're like, I think all of us agree. That's the thing that really freaks me out is like how we can have so many topics, right? where so many people seem to be in agreement, but everyone's terrified. And I'm like, who are we terrified of? That's the thing that makes me wonder.
1: Yeah, I'm totally with you there, actually. And I think this is another element of why (laughs) Rethinking Sex was written as a provocation. One thread, I think, that runs through this book, I'm also just interested in generally in my writing, is the idea that judgment is bad and that making sort of moral or ethical judgments has become almost unacceptable in our society, especially when it comes to things we view as personal. And I talk about this in the book, how we have evolved into a sort of more individualistic, atomized, and sort of freedom fetishizing in a way, society and culture, where I think for good reason, or for some good reason, as you say, the pendulum has swung We look at the past and say like, oh, we used to judge people and shun people for all these different reasons, and now we're liberated and we know what individualism is, and it's no longer appropriate to judge other people or make moral judgments in the public sphere. If you have an opinion about something, you can judge yourself, you can say what you feel about it, but you can't put that on someone else. So you might have an idea of what sex is or have an idea of how gender works, but that's your idea and you can't force other people to live up to your ideals. It's rude to say, oh, I think that you're wrong about something or the way that you're behaving in this arena is wrong. It's just kind of seen as rude in a way. This does feel like a new phenomenon to me, especially when it comes to sex. And because sex I think is so personal it's an area where this sort of new non-moral morality is really strongly in force. So even when people have a disagreement with the mainstream ideal or like everybody knows that something a little bit weird is going on, it just feels a little bit strange. It like feels like it's crossing a line to say openly in a crowd, like, actually, I think sex works like this. Actually, I do think that there is something generalizable that you can say about men and women that actually applies to you too. We're just sort of taught to keep our strong opinions to ourselves for fear of hurting other people's feelings or offending them or not being appropriately pluralistic. So we just don't have those conversations. It's just seen as socially inappropriate. There are good reasons for not judging people when it comes to sex. We've seen how homophobia, slut shaming, that sort of thing have been used to harm people in the past. So kind of get where that came from. But it also makes it hard to make real and important judgments in public about, yeah, what consent looks like, about how we should treat each other in sexual relationships, about what we owe to each other as a society and what standards we can set that we should all share. And so in this book, I actually do (laughs) kind of try and provoke people by making some of those statements, by saying like, actually, some acts are better and worse than others. And some things that we have normed or normalized should not actually be norms. Because only by actually saying these things aloud, can we actually begin to make those judgments in common and set those new standards. But someone has to be brave enough to say it first.
0: No, that's absolutely true, which is one of the reasons I so appreciate you writing this book. It seems like, you know, in the wake of the Christian moral majority of decades past, you know, one I can recall from the 90s, you know, this is how you should do things because this is what God says to do, et cetera. You know, I can feel really constrictive, really restraining. And I know you can relate to this because, you know, you grew up evangelical yourself. You're now Catholic. But I wonder, this is something I've had a conversation about in varying ways with other guests of the show. Where on the left, so to speak, we have this phenomenon now where I think from a well-meaning, but in some ways misguided desire to be inclusive and also to not echo the religious dogma of the past, we've ceded any moral guidance or any kind of like, hey, here's how you could live your life to feel better to conservatives or we've coded that as conservative, right? And then it seems like what kind of happens is, is well, if you're on the conservative end of things, not saying your life is perfect or that you aren't going through your own struggles within your own political circles, but it seems like if you're conservative or conservative leaning, there's a whole host of people who are willing to tell you like, hey, here's how you should live your life. Here's what you should do when you feel like this. This is what you should do over here. And I'm not saying that that of course doesn't happen in left-wing circles, but it seems like there is a hesitancy to offer life advice because the feeling is, and I understand where it comes from, it comes from a good place, but it feels like what that results in is, well, who am I, you know, Christine, to tell you how to live because my background is different from yours and, you know, I, I'm a man and I'm this and I'm that, you know, I come from an immigrant background and you don't and all these other things, right? Which are, of course, valid. But in this desire to recognize everyone as a full individual, we are just seeding all of the ability to make broader proclamations, which may be good advice for a whole host of people, and then coding any advice that is helpful as conservative. It leaves like this big black hole, which you investigate in your book, where there's just a lot of people where they're like, I wish someone had given me guidance when I was younger. I wish someone had told me, hey, when I'm with a guy and he starts choking me, it's okay if I don't like it and I tell him I don't like it. That doesn't make me a bad feminist. I feel like it causes so much undue pain that could be avoided if people just felt okay with saying, hey, you're welcome to ignore my advice, but I'm going to give it anyway.
1: Yeah, I think you're totally right. I mean, I think as a society, and I think this is especially true on the left, we just tend to shy away from declaring certain behaviors like intrinsically wrong or right or even just in between. And I think it is a reaction to the moral majority of the past and what we're seen as repressive standards. It's kind of a skewed sense of pluralism, right? Especially on the left or progressives. You've seen moral standards be used to sort of silence and discriminate against people and you prefer not to cast judgment. You know, you want to be inclusive and not leave anyone out So you don't want to like draw any circles or lessons that could accidentally alienate people. But unfortunately, we are humans (laughs) and actually people do well with a sense of, yes, freedom, but also of rules, of what the norms are, of what we're supposed to do. And that can actually be really healthy and helpful. So in the book, I use the analogy that I actually got talking to an ethicist, a friend of mine, Fanny Bialik of Washington University, of a dinner party. One of the reasons why we enjoy dinner parties is that they're actually kind of regulated spaces. When you go to a dinner party with strangers, there is, yeah, a chance that you'll like meet interesting people and have cool conversations, but you also know you're going to eat food You'll sit down and, like, nobody's going to stab you with a dinner knife because that's just not what's done at dinner parties. And in a sense, it's knowing a little bit of what the rules and norms are that gives you the space for that exploration and sense of freedom. But in some sense, our sexual landscape right now is like a dinner party with no rules. We're so liberated that it's totally unclear what might happen in any sexual encounter. It's totally unclear how you're supposed to talk to people or respond to people. Maybe someone will stab you with a dinner knife. Maybe you'll be hooking up with someone and they'll start choking you. And because we are all afraid to say what the rules are or try and set standards that everybody in some way tries to align to... The experience can be disorienting and scary and you have to figure it out yourself for a long time and in the process often get really hurt. And I agree with you that that is not helpful to a lot of people. And I think in our moment, you know, if you talk to young people, especially you hear this sort of heteropessimism, this just tiredness of the dating landscape, you know, we're like in a sex recession where people don't even want to try anymore, right? They're not having sex. They're not dating, because it's alarming and fatiguing and no one knows what to do. And people are actually like looking for norms and standards, but they don't have any. That's a real loss. That's not a success for progressives, for the left or for society.
0: I mean, in some ways it feels like if we're to talk about rules as structure, the previous structure was in many ways for most people like a prison, right? Like the structure was so constraining that it was like, Prison bars wrapped around what it meant to have sex, how you could have it. It was heavily policed by society and morality. And instead of dismantling the prison, but leaving some of those bars in place as guardrails, we wanted to just blow up the entire thing. And now people are kind of just floating aimlessly. They're not entirely sure how to engage with other people. They're not sure what they should do. And I want to talk about this with you in just a sec. I don't want to catch feelings like it's some kind of disease because I don't want that person to think that I'm moving faster than they are. And then the other person might be thinking, oh, I just hope that they express themselves to me. And, and it's like some kind of prisoner's dilemma or collective action problem where if everyone could just talk about how unsatisfied everyone felt with this lack of rules, maybe we could create a new set of rules that, you know, wouldn't have to apply to everybody. But could at least give some guidance to people who feel lost.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think part of the point of rethinking sex is the idea that we need to be able to make substantive claims in public about what we think a good sexual culture looks like so we can then begin to create that culture. And you know, we can acknowledge the ways in which past definitions have been exclusionary or have negatively affected women or other people, but we still actually need to have an understanding, a shared understanding of what is the good, what ethical sex looks like, what sort of relationships we want to have? That looks like actually saying, maybe in fact, casual sex is not as casual as we've been telling ourselves. You know, maybe certain porn inspired practices, whether it's like extreme degradation, whether it's a surprise choking, are things that we shouldn't do or shouldn't necessarily normalize and mainstream. And all of this, underlying all of these claims, is the idea that maybe we have a duty to other people and not just to our own desires. And unfortunately, this is a judgment. This is actually like laying a claim of judgment and a moral understanding on people who are not me, who are outside of myself and asking them to live up to this other responsibility, which is a thing that we're very nervous about doing these days. But yeah, to create a better sexual culture, we actually just have to have moral and ethical norms.
0: Reading this book, I thought of an article I read 11 years ago in 2012 in the New York Times titled, The Downside of Cohabiting Before Marriage. It was by Meg Jay, who was a clinical psychologist at the University of Virginia at the time. And on the topic of cohabitation and specifically why the data says that people who cohabitate before marriage tend to be less satisfied with their marriages and more likely to divorce than those who don't cohabitate beforehand, she writes, quote, what researchers call sliding, not deciding. Moving from dating to sleeping over to sleeping over a lot to cohabitation can be a gradual slope, one not marked by rings or ceremonies or sometimes even a conversation. Couples bypass talking about why they want to live together and what it will mean, end quote. So similarly, it's not the sex that's the problem or the cohabitation that's the problem but the conversations or lack thereof that we have or don't have around these topics that seems to be causing this. And there's like a lot of evidence in your book saying the same thing. It's like you meet someone for the first night or you go on a, one or two dates with them and then all of a sudden you're having sex and they're doing stuff you don't like, but you kind of just slide into doing it rather than having conversations about how you want to be loved, how you want to be touched. And similar to cohabitation, you're not stopping each step of the way to say, have we considered each other here? You know, like, have we considered what each of us want and what each of us don't want? And so we end up in these situations where we're living with one another and maybe we realize, oh, we're actually unhappy or we're having sex with one another. And we're realizing this is bad sex, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I don't, I don't like this. How did I end up here? Yeah, and I think there are two parts of that almost, and I talk about both of them in the book, but one I almost realized in the researching and interviewing for the book, and one is one that I was already thinking about going in. So one of the big themes of the book is the idea of consent. It does feel like we have made it sort of inappropriate to make moral judgments about what good sex looks like or how people should act, so we have kind of the legal criterion. Like at the very least, you just have to get consent from the other person. And then whatever you do after that is your business. You got consent. The thing is, consent is like a floor, right? It's a legal criterion. It's not actually an ethical one. And making consent our sort of whole standard for how we judge whether sex is good or not, like punts on the really big questions You know, about what our partners really need, what we're looking for in a relationship, what they're looking for in a relationship, what our standards should be and what sex is, in fact. And if you talk to people, if you ask any normal person about what they want from sex, I think most people are wanting more from sex in their relationships than, well, I know that this person did not criminally assault me, so therefore the sex is good right? Everybody wants something higher than that. But if we only stop at consent, just like getting consent from the other person, then we're not talking about that larger question. We're just sort of like sliding into whatever happens next after we've gotten consent. And so that's why I argue that consent is just not a strong enough ethic for sex and we need a better one. And I introduced the concept of willing the good of the other as a better ethic for a better sexual culture. But then in doing interviews for the book, One thing surprised me again and again, and I think actually made Rethinking Sex feel more urgent. I always start my interviews or started these conversations, like usually one of the first questions I would ask is, so what do you want from sex actually? Like you've just told me this story about this unsatisfying encounter you've had or your dating habits or how like porn has changed the way that you date. But like, what is sex to you and what kind of relationship do you really want? And often people didn't have an answer because we don't really stop to think about it. We absorb these messages about, as we talked about in the very beginning of the conversation, how much sex you're supposed to be having, how sex positive you should be, how you should be like out there living life, like hooking up because that's just what you do as a modern person. And so we just do that sort of automatically. But most people don't really sit down and stop to think like, oh, what do I want? What sort of sexual relationship do I want? What kind of romantic relationship am I actually looking for? Is what I'm doing getting me to where I want to go? And if so, what should I change? And so part of the push with this book, too, is to try and get people to ask this really first order question that we often skip over. You know, what is the meaning of this thing that I'm doing and how can I make it better? And It can be a provocative question in some ways because once you start to think about it and then think about your behaviors or what cultural messages you've imbibed and are living out, there could be a real conflict when you realize that what you're doing or what you're thinking is not actually in line with what you really believe or feel or want. But then that conflict can be really productive because then you can move in a new direction.
0: Yeah. Something you just said there is quite profound in that if we are never given the language to describe what we want, we can never actually articulate it. It's almost a meme at this point, but the ancient Greeks didn't have a word for blue. So when Homer (laughs) described the sea, he said it looked like wine. You know, he also said that oxen looked like wine, right? Now it's not to say that the Greeks were colorblind, but they didn't have the word to describe what we now describe as blue. Ancient Greeks also didn't describe the sky as blue. They used other colors to kind of get to what they were trying to describe, but they didn't have the word. And if you don't have the word to describe a phenomenon, you can never articulate it. And so in a way, you were just walking around asking the Greeks to describe the color of the sky and none of them could articulate what they were looking at. So you're right. It's so important that we give people the language to be able to articulate their dissatisfaction and not just their dissatisfaction, but also what they yearn for. I don't really have a larger question there, but the profound, beautiful sadness of not being able to describe what you want because you were never given the language by society or by your elders or by your leaders to describe what you might even aspire to. If you don't have the language for it, you can't actually articulate it.
1: Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. The rosy fingered dawn or the wine dark sea. I mean, I wrote Rethinking Sex to try and jumpstart that conversation. You know, I started thinking about this question post Me Too. And it seemed, especially in the Me Too moment, we'd arrived at this place, we knew enough to not be Harvey Weinstein, right? You know, we were able to talk about how disappointing these sad hookup stories like Cat Person or this like the Aziz Ansari story were. We could say like, this sucks. I'm not enjoying this. But we hadn't really made progress on how to change them. We hadn't put forward a positive vision of what a good sexual culture would look like, what the actual issues are, and what different and better would be. I wanted to jumpstart that discussion. If women and men are able to actually talk honestly about what they want and where that clashes with what's expected or what they've been told and talk about what elements of our current culture, whether it's dating apps or expectations of what sex positivity or kinkiness looks like that they've been given by media and what parts of those descriptions are either serving or not serving them that's when movement forward can actually happen. To go back to what you were kind of saying in your intro, I really wanted to make space for the people who are thinking to themselves, like, wow, something about this moment feels bad. Like my experiences are not good. The vibes are off, but maybe it's just me. And to say like, actually, no, it's not just you. You're not the problem. The culture is. And we should be open and talk about that and have that conversation so we can build something new.
0: I mentioned earlier that you grew up evangelical, but you're now Catholic. What was something, kind of a leading question here, Christine, but what was something that you learned from perhaps one of the most famous Catholics of all, Thomas Aquinas, and how do you feel like that lesson can be applied today in regards to sex? Great question.
1: (laughs) A leading question, but a very good one. So yeah, I mean, we just touched on the topic of consent and how I think consent is the floor when it comes to sex and not the ceiling, even though we sometimes treat it as it is. And I try to invoke what I think is a better ethic for sex. And by ethic, I mean something that's more than just a legal criterion, but an understanding of how we should treat each other to actually be not just not criminals, but actually good. The idea that I put forward in Rethinking Sex is moving towards an ethic of willing the good of the other. And that's the philosopher Augustine by way of Thomas Aquinas. And willing the good of the other is fairly simple, but also maybe a little bit complex. So the idea is that when we're thinking about how to be good to another person, we're thinking about how to have a good sexual relationship or really any sort of relationship, The idea is that you are willing the good of the other person. You're thinking as much about what would be good for them and beneficial for them as you are thinking about what is good for you. The idea is to value another person as much as you value yourself because we're both human. We're all human. We all have this inherent dignity that should be respected. And that might make things like a little bit more complicated and take more time because to will the other person's good In Aquinas' understanding especially, you have to know the other person or seek to know them, to learn about them and what would benefit them. So, you know, in a sexual context, that might mean that you wait a little bit longer to have sex because it is hard to know someone's good when you have only met them when you're like both drunk and it's 2 a.m., right? And in the context of other relationships, that means actually like seeking out the other person, seeking out their dignity and just treating them as valuable in the way that you value yourself. And I think that understanding of human dignity and how that leads to sort of human flourishing and how the ideal of how to treat another person is something that I learned studying Aquinas. And it served me well, I think, not just in the sexual realm, but sort of in all areas of life that deal with other people.
0: As we start to wrap out, I think I've got about two more questions for you, Christine, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. But one thing that I I really want to call attention to about your writing in general, because as I was preparing for this conversation, obviously, I not only read the book, but I read a lot of your columns for the Washington Post. And one thing I really love about your writing is how empathy forward it is, especially when it doesn't need to be. And what I mean by that is I spoke about your writing with Richard Reeves of the Brookings Institution. He wrote the book of Boys and Men. I imagine you've heard of it. And I specifically mentioned your 2018 op-ed, The Profound Sadness of the Jordan Peterson Phenomenon. And what I find distressing generally about how writers and journalists and specifically opinion writers will cover these culture war issues is how there is often a seemingly complete lack of curiosity around a given phenomenon, curiosity around why a person or an idea becomes popular, And then, in place of that curiosity, the motivation as to why that person or idea is popular is sort of memed into existence by the reporters or writers covering that idea. And I used that Jordan Peterson essay you wrote with Reeves specifically because what your writing represents to me and why I value it so much is that you do what Reeves did. Beneath all the culture war of stories around Peterson, as just one example, were questions that necessitated your curiosity. And you didn't rubber stamp Peterson's views. I'll link your op-ed in the show notes, but you understood why young men might be drawn to him. I don't mean to lavish you too much here with praise, Christine, but you know everyone has political beliefs, but what seems to be happening today is that for many writers whose job it is to be curious and empathetic, often their own beliefs become the funnel through which everything is sent through. You know, Instead of meeting people where they are, they cast aspersions from a distance, you know? And so whether you're digging into the reasons behind Peterson's popularity or you're talking with anti-abortion marchers about their views, something that I really admire and appreciate about your writing is how you honestly engage with those different from yourself without compromising your own principles in the process. And this to me feels very rare. And again, (laughs) I don't mean to blow up your ego too much, but I did want to note it because I think a lot of people appreciate it. And so I, as one person, just want to say thanks.
1: Wow. Thank you. Blow up my ego a little more. I love, I love that. (laughs) No, I mean, but really, thank you. That means a lot. As a writer, as an opinion columnist, I try to think of that as my job. I mean, sure, everybody has opinions, whatever, but I want to be curious and I actually want my writing to be helpful in a way like that is the purpose of my pieces And I think I've just learned, and maybe this is just my personality too, and I think it's maybe visible in the book even too, but to reach people, to actually have a conversation, you need to meet people where they are and respect them and actually be curious about them. I can talk as much as I want to about my feelings or my thoughts on the issue, but I want to hear other people's thoughts and understand them so I can actually have an idea of where they're coming from and and where to go. And also, if you want to convince someone of something, then you have to see them as a real person and treat their concerns as valid, which they are because they are humans with human dignity and move forward from there. That's generally my philosophy on things. and I don't even always live up to it, but try at least.
0: I mean, it's certainly something to strive for, and I appreciate your striving. But I think in that vein of your empathy-forward approach to your writing, I want to dust off a question that I used to ask every guest for the first 45 episodes of this show, and I've kind of semi-retired it now, but I want to bring it out of retirement. I think it's appropriate. So here's a question that I'd like to put to you that I've asked 45 other times, and it's this. As individuals, we're limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned, caring person can't be thinking of every person, every group of people all the time. It's impossible. So, Christine, is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? That's
1: a really good question. That's a great question and one that implicates the self in many ways. I can think of a number of examples in my personal life, just people I know those names wouldn't be that interesting or revelatory to the audience here. But a group that I've been thinking about a lot, and since you brought up Richard Reeves, is men. You know, Rethinking Sex, I wrote kind of from, in some ways, a female perspective, because, you know, I'm female. I'm a woman living and trying to date and (laughs) have relationships in the modern world. And the Me Too moment, I think, really spoke a lot to sort of women's feelings and women's discontent with the sexual environment. And there were in many moments, a sort of strain of misandry that became kind of evident where it was just like, oh, men suck. Men are the worst. Men are the problem here. But in this moment and in doing interviews for this book and talking to men more broadly and reading Richard's book too, it's also clear that men are struggling in a particular way. There is a lack of vision there There have been major shifts in society and that role has become less clear. And I think a lot of men feel a little bit lost and like the walking wounded and kind of attacked in this moment as women justifiably, they're coming up from behind, but begin to ascend. And so I'm curious about that experience and want to be empathetic there because I also love men and the men in my life, and I also want them to thrive and flourish. And in a sense, if men are not thriving, neither will women be. But I'm just curious about that experience. And that's (laughs) a kind of large group, sort of 50% of the population, but that I do want to offer empathy towards and continue to think about.
0: Thank you again, Christine, for taking the time to come on the show and speak to our audience today to blow up your ego just a little bit more. I sincerely appreciate your writing. I would recommend not only this book, but your writing in the Washington Post to anyone listening to this. Because while you may not agree with all of Christine's views, and I would actually find it weird if you agreed with any writer's views 100% of the time, you will understand her curiosity and her empathy. So thank you, Christine, for provoking us to think more deeply about ideas that matter. And thank you for your time.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it.
0: Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. I want to learn more about the Where We Go Next audience, which means I want to learn more about you and your thoughts on the show. So if you're listening right now, please send me an email at wherewegopod at gmail.com and let me know, one, what's your all-time favorite episode of the podcast and why? Two, what's your least favorite episode of the podcast and why? And three, where would you like to see this show go next? And hey, While you're here, if you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two-sentence review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to hearing from you.